I'm Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of Make Ours Marvel. Dun, dun, dun. This is episode nine of the show, continuing our walk through our journey of looking at all of the original Marvel comics from their original releases. And we are in September of 1962. Um, we've already been a, done a little bit here, I believe, last episode. And we're going to continue on with the Incredible Hulk number four. Which, number um, four. Which has two, two stories in it. Two more to go. After this one, we'll only have two Hulks left. So, yeah, you mentioned two stories. That makes me want to ask you a question here because we have been, so far, taking turns summarizing these books. Oh. You take a turn, I take a turn, you take a turn. But those have all been essentially single stories with multiple parts. Mm-hmm. This one is actually two stories. We could, we could so how do, do you want to handle that? two people. That will set a precedent, though, that whenever we get to those issues of Journey into Mystery that have the Tales of Asgard in the back, mm-hmm. then it's just going to be like uh, one person gets a four or five issue recap – a four or five page recap. <laughs> okay. So I vote that one person handles the book anyway. Okay. Maybe That's if we get to an annual where those like things are like – Right. And the multiple stories, maybe we can do that. But, you know, for now, maybe one person per book. And that person would be you. Oh, wait. What did I sign up for? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I voted that way. Anyway. <laughs> I feel like I've been tricked. <laughs> <laughs> it was your idea. I'm just going with it. Okay. So September 4th, 1962, the first week of September, we have the Incredible Hulk number four. And there are two stories in this issue. Oh, gosh. It's been a while since I've read this one. Okay. So the monster and the machine has... Um, it's called The Monster and the Machine because basically the Hulk figures out the David Banner origin scene from the 1970s TV show. That he can mm-hmm. sit himself in a machine with um, a laser in it, a gamma laser, and he can shoot himself into being the Hulk or not the Hulk. Um, now, that's not where the story starts, though. The story starts with, oh, Ross is trying some sort of ice missile thing. Yep. Because the last issue, Incredible Hulk number three, they found the Hulk can fly now. And we talked about how is it leaping or is it flying? And they may call it leaping, but it's pretty much flying. Right. Um, and so they shoot, they shoot a stupid Hulk doll into the air. <laughs> it costs billions of dollars, man. And they shoot their ice missile at the doll and it freezes the doll and the doll lands with a big old iceberg kathunk. They're like, yeah, just like the real Hulk, we're going to do that to him. Yeah. Yep. And um, let's see. This is also picking up on the plot thread of Rick being able to control the Hulk. And um, he loses control of him when he sleeps. They don't really talk about what they've been doing about that since that started. Um they go back to their cave lair, and they've just built this thing that you can use to shoot gamma rays at you, and they use it to turn him back into Bruce. And Bruce is tired. He's been the Hulk for a while, and now he's back to being Bruce. He's, oh, he's so tired, Mike. He's so tired that he has to get pushed around <laughs> in a wheelchair. Yes. And he's like, you know what? I've only been recovering my energy for like five minutes, but man, I don't want to live my life as a tired wheelchair boy for the rest of my life. I miss being strong like the Hulk. Man, I wonder if I could be the Hulk again, but but still be Bruce Banner. 
So he fiddles with the machine and they, they make this cool little platform for him to stand on where like he can control the, the machine with some toe buttons and with his little footy controls, he can control the machine and he zaps himself back into the Hulk. And sure enough, the Hulk's super smart, has Bruce Banner's intelligence and no longer wants to kill Rick. Because that's one thing we've seen is that the Hulk always wants to kill Rick. Um, now I don't really remember what the plot is after this. Do they go, do they go in a plane or is that another story? That's the second story. Okay, so I'll I'll give you a hint. Uh, someone's house is on fire. So they just they leave the cave to go traipsing around. They come across a house on fire. That and is Hulk exactly the plot. S- Hulk tries to save somebody, and the dad's like, "Hey, I got my gun!" You just and um, scares him away. And so Hulk and Rick go back to the cave, and Hulk turns back into Doctor Banner um, and goes to sleep because he's he's so tired, so tired, Mike. Yeah. Um, and that's the end of the first story. Now I can recap the second story. Now I can recap what we're ready to talk about it. What do you think? I think we should talk about it. Talk about the first story first. Yeah, let's just talk about it. Um, for one thing, I didn't read the part in the, the cover that said two feature length Hulk thrillers in this issue. So I'm mm-hmm. reading and reading, and then it says the end where you just ended your summary. And I legit thought that was the end of the book. And I almost put it aside to move on to our next book. Yeah, because like our Thor and Ant-Man stories are short. Well, not just that, but so far up until now, these have all been like part one, you know, the Hulk fights the Ringmaster. Part two, the Ringmaster runs away. Part three, you know, the Hulk chases right. after him. And this said the end. So I'm like, okay, well, this issue went by really fast. Wow. And then I just turned it. Luckily, I kept turning the pages and then found that there was a whole new issue. Um, but wait, but what, there's more. Yeah. But what was interesting to me is like when it ended, I actually felt like denied in a way because like they set this whole uh what's his name general ross Mm -hmm. ice machine thing that that up and then like nothing happens with it right so that's why i was kind of shocked that it was over and then the second story i thought oh okay here's where the ice thing comes into play and it doesn't it's a totally unrelated story so that was weird i wasn't sure what the point of all that was other than to get ross to take rick into custody again and another element is that the first uh, the first story sets up a lot of angst about Betty. She misses Bruce. And, you know, you and I have been speculating about the passage of time. Mm-hmm. It really does seem that no time is passing between issues. Right. Because Bruce has been only missing for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, um, on a side note, the first issue was the first day that Betty met Bruce. I wasn't sure about that when I was reading the first issue. But, yeah, that was the first day they met. Yes. Um it's been a few days, and they really, really need to find Bruce. And when right. the story ends, we go into the second story. There are no Rosses. No, but There's then one on soldier the other, who mentions Ross in passing. Then on the other hand, how could just a couple days pass when they have these machines they've built and these like Hulk fortress rooms they can put him in? You know, every night like that seems like a lot of time has passed. But you're right. If you go by the dialogue and what people are actually feeling, it's like every every issue is a day or something. Right. So and, it's kind of weird. It's sort of back and forth. I mean, the whole thing with the machines is like us thinking about the plot and trying to make sense out of it. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. You could just pass that off as like some leftover stuff from some other experiment they were doing. Yep. Apparently, uh, they have an unlimited budget because Ross just goes through missile after missile after ro- – like he created a rocket just to just to get the Hulk to go in it and shoot him off into space, you know, in the last issue. And now he's got an ice machine in this issue. 
Maybe Ross steals all the rockets. Maybe he like all the money goes to him. Maybe that's why the Fantastic Four had to like sneak into base to get that rocket for the first issue because Ross was taking all the rockets. I don't know. Okay, um, go ahead. No, nah, that's just umming because I was okay. done. I need to stop umming so much. I have a um, there. I just ummed for you. I have a question about coloring. Okay. Do you think the colorist is supposed to be making these scenes at night, or do you think that when the Hulk is under Rick's control, it doesn't matter if it's day or night, he's just the Hulk? I think we're past the day versus night thing. Right. Um, we end, But we they don't really that. say it. Yeah, in issue, issue three, we lost the day versus night thing. Okay. Um, all, this all looks like daytime to me. Of course, yeah. all of mine are recolored, so I always have to wonder, you know, is it actually the coloring it was originally well, intended to be? Right, it's all sky blue with me too, and I think these are like copies of originals. So, okay, um, but yeah, but yeah. Whenever he went up um, and got that, he was in space and got that jolt mm-hmm. that made him start right. being uh, followed by Rick. That also jolted him into being able to stay the Hulk during the day. Right. Um, but I've noticed a couple things that I forgot about while I was recapping the story. Like, um, there's. Like Rick and Hulk, Rick gets taken up by Rick Jones and kind of, I'm sorry, Rick gets taken up by Thunderbolt Ross and kind of yelled at him about mm-hmm. where, uh, where Bruce is. And so he summons the Hulk to come and save him. And there's this whole thing really ran about Hulk, like in a movie set and getting food and, and while uh, he's doing that, they try to capture him and he does his first Hulk clap. Yes. I love that. I actually like this is probably my favorite part of the story. Oh, yeah? Which is weird. I find that in these Marvel, in these early bricks were covered. A lot of times, my favorite parts are the tangents that don't really matter all that much um, in the story grand scheme of things. But yeah, I like, first of all, when he's apparently he has a range. Uh, Rick Jones has a range as to how far away he can be before he loses control of the Hulk. And it's pretty or far maybe away. Either that or Rick just didn't have any specific instructions for him because the Hulk goes rogue, right? Mm hmm. And he jump flies around, and you're right, like the flying, the jumping, or the flying, whatever you want to call it, totally looks like flying. Like he's just swooping out of the air and changing direction in air. And flying like straight parallel to the ground on page. Right. There's a really cool sequence on page eight where Rick uh-huh. is in a Jeep and you're looking at the rear view mirror and Hulk is growing in the rear view mirror. It's a very movie like right. thing, and, and I really like it. It was a good part of the issue. You're right. I'm sorry I forgot about my recap. Um, yeah, but see, it doesn't really necessarily pertain to the story. You can omit it and the story still works. Um, but what I was going to say is like when he's not under Rick's control and to the point where he just stands there motionless, he's not really the the same old Hulk anymore either. Like the Hulk that was in issues one, two, three. Yeah, one, two, and three, I guess. Um, he doesn't say anything. He, he reminds me more of like the Hulk that we're going to get. The Hulk smash Hulk, you mm-hmm. know? Other than the fact that he doesn't say Hulk smashed. I think the only thing he says is food. He says food. But he's like dumb, you know? And you can you can argue that that's because he's still under the Rick Jones influence and there's just no particular programming going on right now. So he's kind of running solo. But I kind of feel like maybe this is just a different incarnation too because he got hit by the gamma rays and you know, yeah, changed it him be. again. It, it could have changed um, him and taken some of his intelligence. And-, and that's why he's out in the daytime again. Again, for the first time, I should say. Um the other narration does say that it's just he's operating on impulse because he's not receiving any commands from Rick. But, but you know, right. forget the narrator. I mean, this is this is just the Hulk being the Hulk, um, and the Hulk kind of operates on impulse, right? There is actually like a the, really sweet. Oh, go ahead. Oh, you're probably going to say the exact same thing I'm going to. So go ahead. Bottom of page nine. 
Oh, no, I'm on six. The really okay, sweet six. thing I was going to say is that he saves this busload of kids from the train. Uh-huh. And the caption is like, way, way deep down inside somewhere, Bruce Banner's conscience still exists. So we're establishing that the Hulk, even if he's a different, he's not a different person, obviously. They're all the same person. But like if a different incarnation or a different personality that he's still, maybe there's a part of Bruce Banner that won't let him go too far. Yeah. Yeah, I like to think that. Um, or at least Banner has some influence over what the Hulk yeah. does. Maybe yeah. not complete influence. Maybe he can't always check him, but he, he's yeah. he has he's there. Yeah. So he saves the kids on the bus. He gets involved in a space movie, and then he wants food at the studio commissary. He's like, messed up the set, walks over to their food line, shoves all the people out of the way. He's like, food. And so he picks up the entire pot of whatever that is and start slurping it up yeah and then they all try to catch him and like you said he does the thunderclap which i've always thought was one of the coolest hulk moves personally yeah um i don't know i've never took physics in school so i couldn't tell you if it actually makes any sense but i have always thought visually it was a really cool idea i think it makes sense um have a loud enough noise that shocks the eardrums in their inner ear enough to stun people and make them unable to like, they lose their equilibrium. So you're not knocking them unconscious. You're just kind of like everything goes crazy in their heads. So they fall down. Yeah. That's what happens in this one. Sometimes it seems it's like a physical force. Like it'll knock somebody off their feet or, uh, in the case of the movie, he put the helicopter that was on fire and he put it out by thunderclapping it, which I thought was a really awesome visual. That was pretty cool too. But I don't know if that works, but it was cool. Um, we get to the part in the cave where Rick has this thing and he wants to try to turn the Hulk back into Bruce, but he doesn't know if it's going to work and it might kill him. And he just, uh-huh. you know, cause he doesn't have Bruce to tell him how to work it and how to like change right. the controls and adjust the settings. And it's just a kind of a neat moment. Cause he's like, Hulk, I need you to tell me, should I try to fix this? Even though it might kill you. And he's just like, try Rick, yeah. which means at this point, Hulk wants to, Hulk is tired of being Hulk. Hulk is tired of being Hulk, or because he's under Rick's influence, Banner has more control because he can't move or do anything, I guess. Or, yeah, who knows why, but it is a really cool moment. Oh, he's under Rick's influence. He is. And Rick says, should I try? You've got to tell me. And so Hulk is just obeying his commands (laughs) to say try. (laughs) Right? And then he turns him to Clark Kent. <laughs> because for some reason in my Bruce book... Bruce does look very Clarkish. Bruce has black hair now. Um, he has brown on the next page. No, nope, not me. He's Is totally blue. He's a blue-haired black... Yeah, black with the blue-haired highlights and the glasses. He looks like Clark Kent to me. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, they've uh, they've browned probably where the blue highlights are in yours. Because the black would just be ink. But they, they yeah. put brown it on the, the recoloring. Hmm, um, interesting. I mean, I don't even know what color hair Bruce has. I, I, in my head, it's brown, but... Do you think that they're suggesting that Bruce Banner is going to be in a wheelchair forever? No, but I feel like that's how Bruce is reacting. Right. That's why I was wondering if, like, Rick... Because he says, it's not your fault, Rick. Like, he damaged him somehow. But they... Yeah, they I, th- I think Bruce is just tired from being the right. Hulk for the last several days. Yeah. He does go back and forth a lot. Especially if, like we said, this is supposed to be happening every day. 
Mm-hmm. Been a lot of he's he stopped an alien invasion. He stopped a bad circus. He stopped a <laughs> some golem from the Iron Curtain. I mean, he's been busy. But really, I mean, he turns back into Bruce. He gets in bed, gets a drink, and the caption says, "Minutes later, he's dressed in the wheelchair." He's like, "Okay, I'm gonna make some minute adjustments here, and let's go back in." He just mm-hmm. dies back into being the Hulk. So it's it's a really weird bit of impatience on his part. To get that yeah. strength back. Yeah. Maybe he's just like, you know, the reverse work. So now I know this machine works. So I can just make this one adjustment here. And then I know I can do it. I don't know. But what it's really important to know is that, you know, we had the werewolf by night aspect of him. And that's gone. So now mm-hmm. he's manually changing. The whole yeah. standard Hulk idea of uncontrollable changes just doesn't exist in this series. Not yet. And right now he actually wants to change. Uh, because of the strength. So it's, it's, yeah, that comes later. So speaking of changes and now talking about personas, I still don't think, even though he claims that he is Bruce Banner with the Hulk's body, I think it's a different incarnation. I mean, I don't fooling, think it's Bruce. He's fooling himself. Yeah, I don't think it's Bruce's personality because Rick even says he's more gruff. I think it's just, yeah, it's just a different Hulk. It is. It's a Hulk. It's not even the same Hulk as the first Hulk we got, because the first Hulk we got seemed more like a monster and kind of worded things like a monster. Like, you know, why would I want to be human and must go to this place and get General Ross? But he didn't really, like, have thoughts like this guy. This guy is, like, a thing-level articulate, at least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But he does seem awfully grouchy, and he doesn't talk like a scientist. Well, he kind of does. I've arranged the controls so that I can work them myself. That seems pretty... Uh, Bruce Banner. I mean, he then, has he, yeah, he has some intelligence. But then there's other times when it's like, don't it didn't vanish, Sonny. I got rid of it for you. You know that doesn't sound like Bruce necessarily. The brainless idiots. They're shooting at me. You know, I don't know. So yeah, and then at the end, I mean, unless you have something else, at the end, it's like Bruce is even admitting in his you know in his thought bubble here that he's not really in control. Control. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, he's talking about the Hulk in the third person. I hope he never turns on me. So there's definitely there is there is some back and forth and some give and take between the two personas, and mm-hmm. how much of one and how much of the other. You know that mix that different kinds of mixture can probably determine what the Hulk's acting like. Yeah, um, he does say you know he's so tired he has to rest. He can't keep changing so often. And my thought is then stop changing. Like if you're <laughs> at this point now where you don't have to be the Hulk. You know, then then you're done. Go go find that woman that right. you met. She's she misses you, and and you're done. Well, the Bye, funny Bruce. thing is, he he's never had to be the Hulk. The Hulk has accomplished nothing. Uh, you know, the Hulk hasn't saved anybody or been needed particularly yet. Yeah. So so he could just the Hulk stop. Was in the way, right? Um, maybe it's like heroin or something. Maybe it's an addiction. The power, even if he can't <laughs> quite benefit from it. You know, and maybe after you've you've done your last fix, it's like, okay, I'm going to take a break for a while, but you're just fooling yourself, and tomorrow you're going to want to do it again. So ready for the second half? Yeah. Let's see him do it again. Okay. We had sci-fi drama for the first half, mostly just, you know, silly action and stuff, but this next half is random alien monster, because Mongu, is it Mongu? <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that his name? Yep. Okay, Mongu is this big old burly, like... I think he has like tusks and hair that turns into his beard like this. He's a big old guy. And he lands with his fellow aliens in a spaceship in the desert and he wants to fight the Hulk. Calls out the Hulk 
and Bruce and Rick are sitting around watching TV because that's what you do whenever no one knows where you are and they think that you're lost and have, you know, you have a commanding officer that you haven't reported to in several days. But, you know, let's check out the boob tube. And, uh, hey, look, there's a monster calling out the Hulk. So Bruce is like, okay, I guess we're going to have to find out what this is all about. Stop that monster. Stop that alien. Uh, uses his brand new gamma laser gun with the footy controls to turn himself into the Hulk. Uh, they go over there, face off with the monster. And like after 30 seconds of fighting, it becomes very apparent that it's not actually a giant alien monster. It's a total sham. It's a dude in a suit. They're all dudes in suits. And the alien ship is just like an airplane or helicopter with ship outsides. It's communists, Mike. <laughs> right. The communists are That's here. Worse. Yeah. Pretending to be an alien. So it's like two different tropes combined into one. You have the alien invaders <laughs> and you have the commie bastards and it's both. Uh, yeah. Um, so they fight Hulk for a second and then Hulk is like, you know, there's more army coming in. You better get out of here. And I forget how it ends. Um, does he knock them all out with his, with his big old clap or something? Well, he's the Hulk. So an entire group of humans isn't really much of a threat. Um, and he ends up, wrapping them up in their own belts and hooking them to their own helicopter and letting them fly away. Okay. Yeah. And then the, and then the army blames the Hulk for setting up this whole Mongu. Oh, that's uh, right. Cause they find the, uh, they find the Mongu exoskeleton. Right. Fake ship. And they think the whole thing was a hoax, which it was, but they don't know anything about commie bastards. So they think it was the Hulk who perpetrated the whole thing. That's right. Cause they're the commie bastards are on their way back to wherever. Right. And then it ends with, like, Bruce hobbling down the catacombs with on, like, Rick's shoulder, because he's not looking so good. Um, this, I have very little to say about this story. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just more of the same of what we already talked about. I would like to say Mongu reminds me a heck of a lot of a New Gods character, but I'm not sure who or why. Even, like, his name you're the DC guy. Is there is any DC Calibac? guy that was res- maybe no, that dude doesn't look like this guy. I don't know. It just seems very DC to me, but even though that stuff hasn't even been invented yet as of this comic, but yeah, it's a solid decade away. Yeah. It's just a very Kirby character, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I was really excited. I'm like, all right, a showdown with Mongu. And then they opened up his belly and it was my least favorite Stanley, uh, villain. <laughs> the Russian someone, general. <laughs> yeah, someone from the red curtain. Yeah. Right. They don't even have the decency to tell you what country it's from, you know. They're just always saying communist or red curtain. Right. Um which I will want to talk about in a future issue, but not this one. But yeah, it's mostly just fighting, which is fun. It's hard to talk about, but like there's like eight guys with rifles. How hard is this for the Hulk, you know? Not mm-hmm. hard at all. And just like the last story, it's clearly more hulky than Bruce Banner running the show here, the way he talks and the way he fights. But yeah, nothing really happens. They just beat the dudes up, get blamed for it, and then it's over. The beginning of the story, we do come in with Rick and Bruce just like hanging out in their underground caves. So it's conceivable there might be like a time skip, like there would Mm. be between comic stories. But Mm -hmm. since, you know, there's all this stuff hanging over our heads about him not reporting in and looking for that, I'm going to assume this is just like after he had a nap. This is what happened. <laughs> Either that or he's not reporting in and he's living underground already. But I don't know why he would do that. Yeah, because I 
I know that he is going to return to sort of status quo because whenever we get to Fantastic Four twelve, he I mean Bruce is a person again. Okay, so yeah, it must uh, just be the next day. But um, I like in page four whenever <laughs> Bruce turns into the Hulk and the Hulk says, "Don't just stand there, kid. Get moving. I may need you." Mm-hmm. And Rick says, "Sure, Hulk. Sure." And in <laughs> yeah. my head, he he's so used to the Hulk hating him. That like the Hulk wanting him to come on a mission is like uh, okay yeah I I can come oh see I read it more like you sure don't talk like Banner and you're making me nervous oh but either way either way works Could don't be just both, stand there actually. don't just stand there kid I don't know does he talk like that maybe he does and then they charter no. a jet yeah they charter a jet which um, <laughs> it's like what able to the the Hulk is able to fly so that's is the, the Hulk flying that that's a good point could be the Hulk maybe Rick Jones can fly seems unlikely. It does seem unlikely. He was he was hanging out in his Jeep with a harmonica a few days ago in the desert. Yeah, that's true. In a, in a, in a blast zone because his friends dared him to. I mean, maybe he has a pilot's license. <laughs> you got to admit, though, that Rick is like uh, a pretty cool dude, other than the whole accidentally creating the hole. Because he's really sticking with the guy for as long as he can. I don't know what life he had before this, but apparently it's gone now. Well, he has that one ant that he's never seen before and never right. ever see again. I mean, did he have school or a girlfriend or friend? He obviously had friends because they dared him or he lied about it. Uh, <laughs> to himself. But yeah, he just, with his he just has no life. <laughs> right. He just has no life now because he's just sacrificing. He's like, you know, you saved my life, so now my life is yours kind of mentality, I guess. But the Hulk actually does save the day this time, which is, yeah. you know, kind of crazy. Um, again, there's no mention of all the angst and worry from Betty in the second story. And also, I think that Rick needs to stop commenting on how Bruce is losing his strength. Because he talked about it at the end of last issue, last story times at the end of the story, like, oh, Bruce, you're so weak now. It's going to give Bruce a complex, which is why he's going to want to become the Hulk again. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Mongo comes out and says, I want to challenge the strongest guy on Earth. And what does Bruce do? That's me. That's me. I can be that guy. Yeah. And he is, by the way, walking. So I guess the wheelchair thing wasn't permanent. Right. And he smokes a pipe now. I'm very curious to see why he turns into the Hulk in five. Um, why he decides yeah. to make that decision again. Cause it shouldn't happen, but it will. Of course. Otherwise it's going to be called the incredible Bruce Banner. Yeah. The only thoughts I had on this issue, you know, just, you know, the Hulk can, he can control his changes now. Um, his transition from human to monster is completely voluntary, which is kind of weird. Cause it's not a Hulk dynamic. We are not familiar with, um, and Bruce Banner is still missing from the army. And like you said, it might be because he's finding his life as the Hulk too addicting. So those are just my, yeah. my continuity notes going from this issue into waiting for the next one. Which is Fantastic Four, number nine. Number nine. Uh, which came out in September? Yeah, September 4th, 1962. And it's my turn to tell the tale of the end of the Fantastic Four. So it's been a good run. Nine issues, but I guess they cancel after this. Right. Uh, you want to get so, to double digits, it's harder to print. Right. So let's just enjoy this last issue of Fantastic Four, uh, which opens with uh, Submariner in his underground palace watching like Atlantean Dish Network or something. And he sees on the news that the Fantastic Four are bankrupt. And we all think, well, that's baloney. There's some gotta be some twist to this right well we cut to the fantastic four and there is no twist they are destitute uh reed richards after making all this money with his awesome scientific patents that he stole from hank pym um (laughs) uh 
apparently invested all the money in the stock market. The stock market crashed and now they are broke and they are selling off pieces of the, I always want to call it the Four Freedoms Plaza, but technically that's not what it's called yet. So I'll just call it Fantastic Force Building. They're like selling pieces of rocket here and there and people are just ransacking the place. And basically Reed Richards' idea of, of getting out of this debt is to break up the Fantastic Four, sell all the stuff they use to be the Fantastic Four and hope they break even. Um, but luckily at like the last minute they get a mail uh, that's one of those letters they get a letter in the mail I should say asking them to come to Hollywood and star in a Fantastic Four movie and they will be paid one million dollars which I guess is enough to get them out of this debt so they hitchhike over there immediately because remember they have no vehicles or money or anything anymore so they had to hitchhike um, and when they get there they find that the movie mogul, producer, director, I'm not sure what his role was, who uh, invited them was none other than Namer, the Submariner. Um, Namer has a lot of money because he is the master of the oceans and the oceans have a lot of like lost treasures and valuable things. So he just kind of, you know, put all that together and cashed it in for U.S. currency. And now he owns a movie studio. And he asks the FF, hey, do you want to be in my movie? And they're like, well, you know, we need the money, so let's just do it. So step one, uh, Namer takes Mr. Fantastic to an island and tells him he has to fight a robotic cyclops as part of the movie. No lines, just go in there and fight him. We'll film it. Great. So Mr. Fantastic goes on the island. Namer flies away. And Mr. Fantastic goes, hey, you left me here. And then it turns out it's not really a robot cyclops. It's an actual cyclops that is like friends with Namor. And Namor told the cyclops to kill Mr. Fantastic. Uh, but Mr. Fantastic makes short work of him because just because he's a big cyclops doesn't mean he can step on someone that's made of rubber. So he tries, doesn't work, and then like he falls into a pit. Next, we get uh, Namor pulling the same fast one on the human torch, takes him to an island, says, hey, just go down there and fight those natives. I'll be here to film it. As soon as they go down, uh, uh, Namer takes off. And it turns out the natives are this rare, like, native society that, I don't know, either worship flame or hate flame or something. But they have this potion that they take that allows them to uh, not be hurt by flame, which is pretty sucky for a guy named the Human Torch. So he tries to fight them. They capture him for a little bit, but he easily escapes. And then he finds an active volcano where he like shoots some flames into and the volcano erupts and it turns out, you know, their potion is only so good. It doesn't work against molten lava. So they run away and human torch decides to fly back to confront Namor. Um, and then we got the thing and Namor on a beach and Namor tells thing, okay, we're going to, the next scene is you and me are going to fight or you and I are going to fight whatever's proper Atlantean. And the thing says, what? I can't fight you. I'd, I'd destroy you. And Namor answers that with a big punch to the face and proceeds to like totally beat on the thing and can't figure out the thing can't figure out how he's he's like so powerful all of a sudden. But then he realizes, well, duh, he's Atlantean and he's standing in the water and we're fighting in the ocean. So he grabs the he grabs Namor by the neck and pulls him out of the water and is going to make mincemeat of him. But right before that happens, a random lightning bolt not making this up, kids. A random lightning bolt like hits the thing and he turns into Ben Grimm just in time for the thing, just in time for Namor to punch him in the face and knock him cold. So now Namor has taken care of three out of the four Fantastic Four. He goes back to the studio where 
the smitten uh, invisible girl is waiting for him. And she goes, oh, sure. Let's like hook up. But first, where's my friends? And he's like, you know what? I got rid of all your friends, lady, because you and me, we're going to get married. And as much as she thinks he's hot, she decides to be loyal to her, uh, you know, teammates and says, hey, it's not the Fantastic Three. It's the Fantastic Four. And you've got to deal with me. At which point she turns invisible, starts throwing like books at him and rugs and stuff. And she's kind of actually winning because he's just so like, I don't know where she is. that He's stumbling over his own two feet. But then he realizes that he has like the powers of any animal in the sea. And one animal, one fish can like see in the dark so he uses that power and he grabs her and who knows what he's going to do with her but we'll never find out because the three boys come back bust through the door and say hey that was a really bad thing you did to us so we're all going to gang up and fight you but then you'll probably lose right and namer says yup i probably would lose so he goes back into the water sulking and the last panel is the fantastic four being famous for starring in a movie because apparently the Footage that was never taken was released anyway, and they got money, and they're all back, and everything's good again. The end. Yeah, how this actually became a movie is anyone's guess. Maybe they actually did continue <laughs> filming. I don't know. Yeah. You know, the last time we saw Submariner, he seemed pretty chill. He had helped ward off Doctor Doom. He had helped restore the Fantastic Four building, which I think this is the one that's going to become the Baxter building. Isn't Four Freedoms Plaza like... The new building they get in the 80s oh, or something. Oh, Baxter building. I forgot about that word. Yeah, you're right, yeah. I think. They haven't named it yet in either case, but that's what, that's what my memory was. Um, but this seemed like a very, we are not the Justice League kind of story idea. We've had a couple things where it just seems like Stan and Jack are trying to do stuff that they would not do in the other company. Well, they're, if you read the letter pages, which I'm sure we all are, there's a lot of praise for how they are not like the Justice League. And it's so great to see superheroes like squabbling with each other and not having secret identities and having problems. And I could just see Stan going, you know what kind of problems people have? Bankruptcy. Let's mm-hmm. throw that on them. But can I just say – they're going to – Oh, go ahead. I was going to say they're going to keep this idea for Spider-Man. It works a lot better for him, I think, than the Fantastic Four. Oh, totally. It makes the Fantastic Four like look like dummies, really. Yeah. Um, but I just want to talk about the cover for just one second, and that's going to require me to backtrack two issues, which I don't really want to do often. But in this case, I looked at the cover before reading any of it, and I just saw a mob of people like throwing bricks at the Fantastic Four, right? Right. Um, with Namor standing there smiling. Now, if you read the captions, it says they're broke and they're being kicked out of town. But before I had read that, I flashed back to number seven of the Fantastic Four, the plot with Jarrell and Krypton and like – in order to get Fantastic Four to come back to Krypton with them, the robot like right. made the whole made the whole world hate the Fantastic Four, right? Yes. I think we kind of forgot to talk about the fact that they never solved that problem. Uh, oh, you're right. They never do like, address the fact that everybody hated the FF. They never discovered that the robot did it. So as far as they're concerned, the whole world still hates them, and they're coming back to it. And then I thought that was the last issue, and this was the follow-up. And I was like, wow, continuity. They come back to Earth, and everybody still hates them. But then I remembered the whole Puppet Master thing, so that didn't make sense. Mm. Um, And really, I'm just talking about this because there's no real point other than it made me think of that issue. And now there's two issues. In two issues, and it is easy to conflate those those ideas. Um, But yeah, this is definitely – 
all of this seems to be Namor's bid for Sue's heart. Yep. That, that's his whole plan. He's not actually yeah. anti-Fantastic Four so much as he is, they're in my way to get Susan Storm. Which, you know, if he were smart, he'd realize that that would never work. Like, it'd be better if mm-hmm. he just straight up tried to date her, right? If he tried to follow some Western, uh, you know, surface people customs. <laughs> right. Because it's not like they have her trapped. She could do what she wants. I mean, they might give her grief for it, but she could just say, sure, let's start seeing each other. Uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> So the, but, the Fantastic Four have run out of money. But – And – Yeah. They do address how they got the money, which we had been wondering about. Yeah, because I had this whole like thing about how they might have gotten money and how they might have lost the money. And then they go and explain it all. Yeah. I'd really like to know what those patents are. I'm guessing on things like their vertical takeoff and landing thing and their pogo plane and their stretchy powers and maybe he patented things skin. See, because I, you know, as much as I love Marvel and how, like, it kind of feels like more like in our universe, as we've talked about before, sometimes I wonder, like, if, if it would be cool to see actual changes to our world because the Fantastic Four live in it. Mm-hmm. Like, why can't everybody have a fantastic car, you know? Or, uh, I don't know what, unstable molecules. <laughs> Maybe they do. But, <laughs> like, like, do you think Reed could cure cancer? It seems like he should be able to. But, you know, things like that. So there's all these these patents, and they just kind of – that's just all one panel. Like, oh, I had all these patents, and it made millions of dollars, and then I invested them, and they went away. But that just made me wonder, like, what were the patents? Were they, like, super sci-fi in nature, or were they just, like, things that we take for granted that nobody – like, did he just invent the Post-it, and we don't know? <laughs> that's you know what I wanted to have happen. He's the guy who invented Post-it notes. <laughs> I mean, he could invent any – because we don't know who invented most things that are in our lives. So maybe he invented the iPhone or something. Uh, who knows? Be interesting to find um, out. Ben Grimm seems to be the most upset about all this, and he's mm-hmm. so upset about all the hours designing everything. I like to think that he actually helped with the designing part. I do too. Some of it was before he became the thing. Maybe if it was after he became the thing, he still, you know, he still has all of his brains. He just doesn't like to act like it. Um, so he storms off because he's so upset. And I love how like he gets outside, and the taxi won't take him, so he shoves the taxi, you know, breaks it up, and he's still at the bottom of his building. And he shoots the flare. Right. And he gets the torch to pick him up and take him to Alicia's. Yeah. And and the torch comes down in the car and is like, Well, if I knew it was you <laughs> and it's like, what, what do you what do you mean if I knew it was you? I mean your sister and her and, and, and Reed are up upstairs. I mean Yeah. Maybe he meant like, dude, why are you asking for a lift? You haven't even left yet. Um but he goes I to lo- see uh, Alicia, who's right now yeah. just a friendship. Yeah, I skipped over that in the summary because Again, that's one of these like off tangent things, but I really do love this part a lot because uh, you know we talked about I think when we covered FF one and probably other times where like Stan had this idea of thing being like maybe the the doctor of the uh, Lost in Space, you know, like not necessarily part of the team. Right. Uh, he's there for he's there for Sue, and he's going to maybe screw up their attempts at being heroes every once in a while. But I love this scene where it's like essentially Alicia's just like you know. That's what your creator Stan Lee wants, but I can see the future. And in the future, you've got a heart of gold, and you're very, you're a very moral, upstanding guy, and you would never abandon your friends ever. And he's just like, "Oh yeah, that is me." Um, and I just thought that was cool. Yeah, yeah it but it's me. just like it's just like that. This is the conversion right here. Maybe like maybe she calls him on his crap. Maybe he was like that as a human, and then when he became thing, he's been grouchy for a while. Rightly so. And now she's just like, you know, I see the inside you, and this is all just baloney. 
I know for a fact that you would never do this to your friends. And then he comes back all like the love, the beloved thing, you know, like giving them all a team hug and everything. And, and she, uh, she has sculpted a knight, which we did not see any sculpting from her last issue. Right. So does that mean maybe she sculpted the puppet master's puppets? Well, those were all out of radioactive clay. He had to do those with gloves oh, on. Oh, yeah. It's possible, but I'd like to think that if he, if so, then he, you know, like, and of course her sculpting ability is straight up Daredevil level, you know, it's just, <laughs> you, she's got two, there's she's no got, way. She's got two clowns hanging in the back of this one panel too. So I guess that's a hobby <laughs> for her. The, um, the bottom of that page reads wholly of a comic book. He says, if only we could be like the superheroes in some of these comic magazines, Sue. And she says, yeah. I can't bear to see you torture yourself this way. And it's just like, draw a big freaking arrow on it. <laughs> Don't torture yourself. Don't read DC Comics, Read They're terrible. <laughs> Don't do it. Which is not how I feel. I'm a big DC fan. I like Silver Age DC. I've read every Superman comic from this era I've read. But it seems like that's what they're doing. <laughs> that is exactly what they're doing. And it's awesome. Uh <laughs> I mean, I too like DC, so I'm not trying to slam on them. But I do think it's I just see I just see Stanley like rubbing his hands together on that panel. That's hilarious. I enjoy the rivalry, especially in these early days where Marvel is an up and comer, and they have they kind of have the right to sort of rib the establishment. Yeah, and I like the rivalry in later decades, whenever it's like, yes, we're rivals, but we also work together on projects. Yeah, I'm not super fan f- fond of the rivalry nowadays. We're like. It's Marvel versus DC, and nobody at Marvel likes people at DC, and nobody at DC likes people at Marvel, and and like the the fan. There, there's nothing cooperative anymore about DC and Marvel. And do you think that's either a because of the movies that both sides are doing now, whereas before they kind of Marvel really didn't have much of a movie presence for a while, so there was never that. Um, or do you think maybe it's just all in our heads because all we do is read Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus all day? I don't know. I mean, the last couple of times I've seen someone mention a team up that they've actually responded to, they're like, who's going to profit from this? Mm. Who's going to, who's going to make money off of this? And it just seems to be like, eh, we're not going to do this. And I, it's a commercial art business. So you can't do a project unless it's going to be profitable. But at the same time, wouldn't it be profitable? Maybe JLA Avengers tanked. I don't know. That was, wasn't JLA Avengers the last big thing they did? That couldn't have tanked. That was awesome. That's, that's the impression I have. I haven't read it, but. Kurt Music and George Perez. That was a huge event. I don't. I mean, I don't know what the sales were, but I don't remember it. It didn't spawn the Amalgam Universe. Okay, so Amalgam Universe, Marvel versus DC. I thought was pretty horrible. I don't know the numbers though. I'm just going by my own personal opinion. But well, JLA uh, Avengers was after Marvel versus DC, right? Right. Um, I thought Amalgam was before JLA Avengers too. But I can't remember. remember. Where Amal- I don't know where Amalgam came out of. I think Amalgam did come out of Marvel versus DC. Right. So it was Marvel versus DC Amalgam. Oh, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. They did that whole vote thing. Who would win in a fight? Pitting us poor, pitiful fans against each other. (laughs) And then then they turned it, hey, just kidding. We're all friends. And they mushed all their characters together, which we all found to be great fun. And then, yeah, JLA Avengers. That is like a good read. If no one's ever, if you haven't read that and you're a fan of JLA or the Avengers, major respect. To both teams, in my opinion. I'm sure there are people out there that would disagree, because there always are. Kurt Busiek obviously hates the JLA, or he obviously hates the Avengers. But I thought it was great respect for both universes, and a real good knowledge of both universes, and a real good flair for making you feel like the differences between both universes. 
And it was like, you know, the JLA were in the Grant Morrison run and the Avengers were in the Kurt Busiek run. So they're both at really high spots in their history. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't uh, read it yet, but I'm looking forward to it eventually. Well, we'll get there. We will. Damn it. Um, but How not did we get on that trip? Oh. <laughs> oh, because of that panel. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So page five, he's like, Johnny doesn't understand that it takes money to run an outfit like ours. There's upkeep on our planes. There's equipment, electronic devices. And I'm like, don't forget all the asbestos spray for Johnny's apartment. <laughs> it is a little weird. They, I mean, I don't want to nitpick plot for say, but like Reed thinking they have to disband um, seems odd to me. Like, why can't you just, I guess because of the upkeep he's, he's saying, but why can't you all just go live at Sue's house and right. still fight people? And, and, and they get a letter from S&M Studios. And I'm like, what kind of movies are you making? Yeah. Is that what it is? Oh, my God. It is S&M Studios. Yep. Submariner Studios. Oh, God. Right. I didn't notice that. Um, I like the hitchhiking scene. It's totally comical. It's totally laughable. You you kind of think like, oh, my God, there must have been 28 other ways they could have got to that studio. But at the same time, it's just funny. They're going all the way across the freaking country. Hitchhiking? Wow. In their outfits. In their outfits. Johnny's all hitched over, too. He's doing the whole, like, hitchhiking pose. You going my way, buddy? And they notice they got Stu- Sue up front to show her leg first. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. Um, we get all the Hollywood stardust. I'm sure there are lots of likenesses that Kirby's doing here. I don't know all of those. <sighs> okay, so let's try. Because I tried uh, a little. You, you can. I, I don't know them at all. Okay. Um, well, the one guy is Alfred Hitchcock. That's pretty obvious because it's a profile shot. And then there's Bob Hope. And what I think is um, um, – I can't remember his name now. He's one of the uh, Frank Sinatra guys. And then I think this dude is is from the uh, the Honeymooners. What's his name? Jackie Gleason? Oh, Jackie Gleason, yeah. Yeah, that's all I got really. I'm sure there's supposed to be more, but – who do you think is the um, Who do you think is the cowboy Robert Redford or something? See, that's what I didn't know. Like, is that supposed to be John Wayne or something like that? And he can only do one female face. So I don't know who that is. <laughs> right? Yeah, that looked like a very specific pose and dress, though. So I'm wondering if we're supposed to know that too. Someone should write in who knows this stuff better than we do. Well, he has all these really great lines and details in the other people's faces, and the mm. woman is just literally just a nose and eyes. There's nothing yep. to define who she is there. Yeah. Um, and they oh, all have the dialogue. Better. They all have dialogue, so obviously we're supposed to know who these people are. But the submariner turns around with the cigarette stick, and he promises them a million dollars to do uh, the movie. Uh, yeah. And the first thing that Johnny does, I mean, forget the debts they have to pay off. <laughs> forget the people who are currently taking their things because we owe them money. Johnny buys a sports car and gets some chicks. Yep, he's a kid. Ah. I'm trying to figure out what inflation is. Um, okay, so they're essentially making $8 million. $8 million? That doesn't seem like enough to buy rockets and buildings and stuff to me. Like yeah. It's like it's like Dr. Evil's stand was just like, a million dollars sounds good. $100 billion. <laughs> <laughs> well, inflation is weird because it's not just inflation. It's also like just how much stuff costs compared to how much you're yeah. making money. That's like, true. We we make less money now compared to the cost of things. Right. Like rockets. And, right. So, yeah. I don't know. Um, so, I'm going with the idea that Susan is legit toying 
with the idea of romance with Namor. That oh. If things had gone just a little bit differently in this issue, she'd be with Namor. Oh, Is absolutely. That how you read it? Oh, of course. Yeah, they're going out to dinner. He didn't like blackmail her into going out to dinner, did he? No. She's she's there in a fancy dress, candlelight. I was thinking about you, Namor. Mm-hmm. You've been so kind to us, so generous. And she has a picture of him in her back in her in her room. And I mean, her engagement fell apart. You know, we talked about that. Her engagement for mm-hmm. issue one has fallen apart. Uh, she and Reed are no longer together. Yeah. And Namor is a pretty impressive man. Yeah. Now, the way that the story's been told so far, it's very Stanley misogynistic. They've encountered one time and he's all like trying to possess her and she's responding positively to that, which is not realistic at all. <laughs> but within the confines of the genre. <laughs> right. Well, we don't really know her backstory yet, so we don't know. We can't even theorize as to what kind of man she would like. So I guess her liking Namor is just as good as any other guy. Mm-hmm. He's rich. He's powerful. He's super strong. He walks around in his underwear. And it's not quite written this way, but I like the idea of him whining and dining Sue Storm while all the other FFers are taken to their traps. Like, he's showing yeah. her a good time, and in the background of the story... The other team members are having troubles and and winding up and you know and and trapped and everything, but that's yeah. not the way it's written. No, because he he's gone along to all the traps. So yeah, that's too bad that they did it that way. Maybe it would have been cooler if like just his henchmen took them out to the locations. And is this a real way of making movies? Just like filming action scenes and figuring out the story later. I mean, that's that's sort of a trope I see in stories about making movies. But does that happen? Maybe in the sixties it did. I don't know. I mean, I don't think it happens now. Right. Uh, but maybe like, maybe in the Charlie Chaplin days or something, he just did something and then they made a movie out of it. I don't know. Um, yeah, movies are too big now to just make it up as you go along, I would guess. But I don't know. Maybe back then. Or it's a comic book trope. Yeah. I mean, you do have things like the Power Rangers, which the, all the yeah. all the action scenes from the Power Rangers, all the stuff where they're in their suits fighting monsters – all of that is actually taken from a very different Japanese show, and English dialogue is laid over the top right. of it. Right, or and the so, last, the last uh, movie that Bruce Lee was in. You know, he died mid shoot, so they just took what they had and made a whole movie around those right. two pieces of footage. So, I don't know. Maybe if you're dealing with superheroes, you make them do some action stuff, and then you hope that you can come up with something more interesting later. <laughs> but in this case, he's not making a movie anyway. I guess Reed and. And Johnny and the thing just wouldn't know how to make a movie regardless. They do question it. I mean, he's like, there's no dialogue or anything. And yeah, no, no, you just, uh, we don't need a script right now. Just go over there and thrash around. We'll figure it out later. Mm-hmm. Um, with the whole human torch scene, I thought that, like, even if you're immune to fire, which is a bit of a stretch, but you know, wouldn't a dude bursting into flames right in front of you still be kind of startling? Yeah, especially if you're all about the fire, whether anti or pro fire. I'm not really sure which. Um, I forgot to tell that full teenager one little detail. Those natives have a magic potion which makes them immune to fire. So, and he never says, is that because they worship fire so badly that they don't want to get burned by it? But, or do they just hate fire? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. They really like showing off how they can't get hurt by flame, though. They have like the bonfire going and they walk through it. Johnny's entire power is so is he's the probably the most inconsistent fantastic four member as far as powers go like just mm-hmm. 
he's kind of like Ant-Man, just like, that's not the way ants work. And a lot of times I'm thinking, that's not the way fire would work necessarily. <laughs> or, you know, like that volcano. Oh, look, this vault has been smoldering for years, even though I just got here. Shoot a fireball <laughs> into it. And well, that or like he's bulletproof. It's like, how hot are you that a bullet going that fast would just melt, melt right. quickly enough without hitting you? You know, like stuff like that. Oh, but he does to- make. He does make the flame duplicates here, which is like Strange Tales striking again. Yeah. I think that's cool. I like the duplicates. Um, we'll have more to say about that in the next issue where there's something I don't like about the duplicates. But in this particular case, it's cool. Um, but how did, then, Reed, how did Reed get off the island, by the way? That makes me wonder. How did Reed get away from the Cyclops island? Yeah, because he can't fly and there's no helicopter anymore. He's stuck there forever. Oh. Or unless there yeah. was still a boat. Maybe there was a boat. You know, he got there by boat. He stretched over from a boat. He could stretch over away again. Um, no, he says, now to return home, we're finished here. So theoretically, Submariner took the boat. Yeah. Stretched? I guess. Human Torch picked him up on the way? Yeah, I don't see how he could possibly have gotten back. I'm flipping through now. Yeah, the next time we see Reed, he's just bashing in with Thing and Johnny. Um, speaking of Thing, though, like, the fight between Thing and Namor seems to be the most, like, passion-driven like, yeah. Namor really wants to show the thing, yeah. a thing or two. Um, so, it, I, I, in my head, I'm like, so what if Sue told Namor about things flirting with her Ooh. and, like, finding her picture? What if Sue knows that Ben has a thing for her and and in their dinner conversation this came out and Namor's like, okay, this guy's going down. Wow. You know, that would have been a great on-panel thing. To have happened, but we can still make that part of our continuity in our our head canon, right? Um, I like that. That's a really good idea. Or at the very least, neighbor just perceives uh, the things like overprotective, love smittenness towards Sue, like in right. past encounters or something. Any either way works. But, but like, uh, why not want to rip? And that's kind of a testament to how Reed doesn't seem to give a care anymore because like. There's no jealousy from Submariner towards Reed ever. There's nothing between Namor and Reed in this issue. There's not a single thing that's like on a personal level between them. And there really should be. Yeah. If he still has a thing for Sue. Well, same with the last time when she, they caught her with the picture and he was like, you need to explain to us why you have that picture of our villain. Not do you need to explain to me why you have a picture of a topless guy? (laughs) Um, I, I and, love this fight though. It's really cool. With the um, thing I could just, and, and Namor, yeah. And I could just, a, pi- <laughs> I could picture the part where like there's this three panels where it's like he he uh, pounds on things shoulders and pushes him into the sand, and then he goes back up and does it again and again and again, you know, until he's right. like under the water. That's just really cool. That is a cool part. There's Kirby is such a good eye for action and just what would look good in motion and. Like taking several panels to portray that motion. I yeah. mean, normally with, like, with a nine panel layout, we associate that with with Steve Ditko or whatever. But Kirby can Kirby can tighten it up when he needs to. And they established last time because he had to go find a water tank to bathe in before he could go beat up Doctor Doom. That obviously in the water he's stronger, or when mm-hmm. he's recently touched water, he's stronger. But I do find it interesting that the thing was like baffled that he even wanted to fight him because he's like. You have no chance against me, you know? And he's seen Submariner in action, so he clearly thinks that he's just way stronger than this guy. Um, and to be fair, the thing has not yet had anything meet his match. Right. And I like that once he takes him out of the water, it does appear as if 
Submariner now will have no chance mm-hmm. um, until this random lightning bolt, which, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> come on. I mean, I know it's 1962, and this is for – who is he writing this for? Teenagers or kids, do you think? Uh, probably young teens. I mean, I think Strange Tales is for the older kid market. I think Fantastic Four is for the young teens. But that, isn't that still like a little like – and then just a random lightning bolt. I don't know. Um, well, he's got a – I don't know, because they seem really concerned in these early issues with making the uh, the thing turn back into Ben. Like, and I don't yeah. know if they were going somewhere with it because they just drop it eventually. Do you want to know what I think all of a sudden? Because you just said that. He's been turning into Ben randomly for nine issues. Mm-hmm. What if this is, again, a difference between art and dialogue? Like, Kirby's just having him change. That's not a lightning bolt. That's just him being, like, suddenly struck into changing. Oh. And it's like action. And then Stan Lee sees that and goes, what is he, getting hit by a lightning bolt? I'll just write that in the caption. Oh, that does make sense. Like, it's not a lightning bolt hitting him. It's just like it's just, uh, a, a way of showing the shock of the change beginning. Yeah, suddenly he's changing. Oh, and there's action lines. It's not really looked. It doesn't really look like a lightning bolt per se. Mm-hmm. I think that's what happened. I think that happens a lot in these issues. I I've noticed. Yeah, we got to be careful with art versus dialogue. You might accidentally destroy a planet, and then you have to kill a character. Well, for those who don't uh, know, like. They did all these in the Marvel method, which is not the same as how they did things maybe before or since, where usually like the writer writes the dialogue and the script and maybe even breaks down each panel for the artist. And this is like Stanley is writing all these books. There's some debate about how much plot he even gave Kirby. Maybe Kirby was doing all this on his own. Um, well, I think the but, plot that we saw in the Fantastic Four One Bible right. is probably indicative of what kind of plot Kirby would get. Right. It's going to be 11 pages long. Here are the ideas. Here's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And Kirby actually kind of changed that story up a bit. Yeah. So, And then I think Stan would come in after the pictures are done and write his Stanley, you know. Uh, Snazafraz dialogue. Snazafraz dialogue. Right. Snazafraz is perfect. So sometimes I think he just misunderstood or misinterpreted what the art was supposed to be saying. Or in the case of like Thor and Strange Tales, Stanley does the plot, Kirby does the breakdowns or full pencils, whatever. Someone else mm-hmm. comes along and inks it and actually fleshes out the images. And then Stan's brother, Larry, is the one who actually has to do the scripting. And so that's like four different people making this story happen. And who knows how much they're talking to each other. Right. And how quickly um, they're doing it. Right. So there's not really a whole lot else to say. They come in and fight. And, you know, on page 23, um, she says, where is it? Okay, they're about to fight him. And she gets in front and she says, stay back, all of you. Even if you think he is your enemy, it's three against one. You've never ganged up on anyone before. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know about that. Besides, we made a contract with Namor. We lived up to our part. He cooperated in his movie. Now he must live up to his part. I... In my in my mental movie of all of this, um, oh, I'm sorry, forget all that. I was just reading. This is the thing I was actually wanting to read. Um, after all, he lives by a different code than we do. He can never really understand us, and whatever he did, he did for love. And I would like to think that after she said that, she and Reed sort of had like an unspoken moment. Maybe eye contact. Maybe she touches his shoulder as she walks past them and out of the room or something to resurrect his hope for them. Because in the last panel, they have their arms kind of casually, Ooh. romantically around each other. 
I didn't notice that either. Another headcanon written by John that I will register in my brain because I like that. Meanwhile, Ben is kind of side-eyeing him in that last panel. Mm-hmm. Like, his head is kind of cocked. He's like, well, bullocks. Well, <laughs> I have Alicia now, so it's okay. Yeah. Um, I did mostly enjoy this issue. Actually, more than I thought yeah. I would because I wasn't really expecting to like it very much. Um, but it was mostly for the subtext I was adding in more than the actual story. <laughs> yeah, I like this issue a lot. I don't know. I mean, it's not the most serious or epic or earth-shattering Fantastic Four issue, but it was just like a lot of good fun, which yeah. which seems to be the issues I enjoy so far with the Fantastic Four the most. Like, um, I don't know. what was They weren't the Toad Man. Oh, they, the Scrolls, that was kind of fun, but it's like it's just silly. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, they're not really superheroes, so it's kind of fun to see them just do different things. Like, Fantastic Four goes to Hollywood, or has no money. Um, Who needs money anyway? Yeah. Yeah, it's good dynamic. It's our only team book, too. So it's the only book we have where, you know, superheroes are interacting with one another. Agreed. Well, that um, yep. that has taken us well past the hour mark. So I guess we had one other uh, issue lined up for this one. We'll have to say that for next time. Um, but it's kind of a good thing because we have a whole bunch of our smaller stories next time. We might just barrel through all of the ones. I don't know. I think next episode is going to have 128 issues we cover. <laughs> All the strange tales. <laughs> Five minutes per issue. Just like, okay. <laughs> People still don't know Johnny is the Human Torch. Next issue. <laughs> um, before we go, um, you should probably tell them where we can find us. And then I can say thank you, people who have found us. You can find everything you need to know about us at makearsmarvel.com. It has our links to the social media, to the RSS feed, to the iTunes. Uh, has a contact form. You can write in and let us know who those celebrities were in this issue, or you can write directly podcast at makearsmarvel.com. Um, and speaking of iTunes, I haven't begged about this yet, but I just realized that the other day, if you want to leave us a review or maybe somewhere else that you play us like Google play, I think we're on that. I'm not really sure how all that works, but definitely iTunes leave a review, preferably a good one, but no pressure. Um, and the more reviews we get, the more likely we'll get hit if someone searches Marvel or, you know, awesome podcast or something. That would be appreciated. You're, if you're one of the people watching us on, on YouTube, you can leave a comment. Oh, yeah. We also have a YouTube. I forget about that one. Well, it's linked from the, it's linked from the website, makecarsmarvel.com. Yes. yes. So um, the following people have, uh, follow, have liked our page on Facebook. Um, I think last time I said Twitter for all the Facebook people. That was a mistake. But David Ellis, uh, Frank Allen, and Shirley Gorman have all liked us on Facebook. Now, Mike, when you're if reading the letters columns, um, it's going to take us a while to get to the 60s. But as we get into the later 60s, you will see several letters written by Shirley Gorman. She really? was a fan of these comics back in the day when she was in middle school. <gasps> so she can write in and tell us things that we don't know. Right. Because we weren't but, um, even born yet, but she is she is my friend on Facebook. We uh, we enjoyed you know liking each other's geeky contributions, and um, she should she should write in and tell us. I mean, we can already tell by these newsletters or by these um, letter pages, but write in and tell us what the climate was like between DC and Marvel during all. Oh, this. yeah, yeah. What was it like? Or what, what from her perspective, not necessarily historically accurate, but like, what did she think of DC and Marvel? Right, and that relationship there. So I think she wrote into both. I think she read both. Yeah. Um, and over on the Twitters, 
you um, can follow us there. And unearthlyvisions.blogspot.com is a blog about the vision. And they have Ooh. followed us on the Twitter. So um, cool. you can look up Unearthly Visions or I am Grant Richter. So thank you, Grant, for following us there. And um, I guess, you know, until Namor the Submariner has a crossover with Aquaman, make ours marvel. marvel.